I've studied and looked at the book of Hebrews over the past 10 years. And specifically, I remember being uh, graduating from college and graduating from Moody and getting my Bible degree. And I remember having the feeling in my life that I felt like I was prone to drift, prone to drift away from some of the truths or the things I feel like I should be following that God's word says. And I remember at this time in my life, God opened my eyes to the teachings of Hebrews. And I, since that point, book of Hebrews has been just a bedrock to my faith, a foundation for me to build my life on, specifically the truths that can be found in chapters 11, the glorious truths that are in chapter 11 and chapter 12. You see, for many people, we think about the, the Christian life, and I think I had this feeling too of the Christian life is all about following maybe a list of rules or what I should do or what I shouldn't do. Maybe the Christian life is just kind of going through this, this routine, this religious routine, Sunday to Sunday. But the book of Hebrews talks a little bit about the fact that our lives as Christians is much more than that. That we need to be seeing Christ as great. Christ is this great high king, this great high priest. And when we see him, we should value him. Just like a man sees a jewel in a field and with that joy in his heart sells everything. That should be our, our focus when we see Christ. So the book of Hebrews sets up Christ and argues that Christ is greater. And when I saw that truth, I started to see that I need to start seeing Christ that way. That I need to do what the author says in chapter 12, which is to fix our eyes, to fix our eyes on Christ and see him as valuable in the word. And I'm so excited that I get to fix my eyes with you today as we go through Hebrews chapter 12. Before we jump into today's message, I think it's really important for us to take a moment and review some of the things we've covered. We've been in this series on the book of Hebrews, this greater than series, and there's two main things I want us to see before we get started. First of all, we've been looking at the argument that Jesus Christ, he has the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature and upholds the universe by the power of his word. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We also are right in the middle of the argument that the author has been making that Jesus Christ has accomplished complete salvation for all who trust in him. He's been laying the foundation. The author has been laying this foundation for us, and that's where we find ourselves today. The other thing we see in the book of Hebrews is also the fact that the author has been warning those who have been listening and us reading that not to drift away, not to get dull of hearing, to be aware of the truths about God so that we don't drift, that we don't neglect our great salvation. The second thing we see and have seen so far in the book of Hebrews is the fact that Jesus Christ is our priestly king. That he is uh, from the line of Melchizedek. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dave talked to us about the insignificance of Melchizedek and how because of him, Christ is not only a king reigning in heaven, but also a priest. He's the only one like this. And we also saw two weeks ago the fact that we as, as believers and we as humanity have a need to be covered by the blood of Christ. That only through the blood of Christ that our sins are removed. The blood of sacrificial system could only cover, but we need our sins removed. So with those things being said, let me pause and take a moment for us to pray. So pray with me, will you? Dear God, I admit that I can do nothing without you. 
And we admit that without you and without your Holy Spirit meeting us here, that we can do nothing. So I pray that you would be here. I pray for your help today as we look at your word. May I be faithful in the presenting of your word and may you open our eyes so that we can see your truth. We know that your word says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it'll be open. So we pray, Lord, that you will open our doors and open our eyes to these things. And with this truth, God, we are, we are excited to be in your word. Thank you for what you're going to do with this message. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As we look at Hebrews chapter 8, there's a couple of things that we should also remember about book of Hebrews. The first thing is this book is being written to a group of Jewish Christian believers who did not see Jesus directly. They did not see him face to face. They weren't one of their the disciples. These, this book has been written to believers who are second or third generation believers. Christ has already returned to heaven and they're learning about Christ from the letters that are being written. That's really important for us to see that. We also need to know the fact that these believers are in a context where the temple and the sacrificial system that is still in place in their day. The temple hadn't been destroyed yet, so the priests were still offering sacrifices day in and day out. And that was the context in which they were in. The other thing that is important for us to see is that there were people in this group of believers who were prone to drift. They were thinking, maybe we should go back to the original Jewish teachings and traditions and drift back that way. And the author is so desperate to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's the context in which we are in and we find ourselves in as we enter into the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. And over the next three chapters, we're going to be seeing how the author tackles the fact of how Jesus is a superior high priest. In chapter 8, which we will be looking at today, we see that we have a better covenant because of Christ. In chapter 9, we see that, we have, that Christ serves in a better sanctuary. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we have that Jesus is a better sacrifice. So we'll be looking at those things today. Today's message, we're going to be looking at three key movements in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. The first is that the covenant that we have, this new covenant, is ministered by a superior high priest. The second is that the covenant is ministered in a better place. And we'll be looking at, well, why is that important? And the third, the covenant is founded on better promises. And before we jump into God's word, I think it's important for us to, to realize that if you're here and you're listening to me here in, in, in this building or online, that if you've been struggling with feeling far from Christ, or maybe you've lacked the desire or willpower to pray, or if you just are looking for hope and encouragement in your present circumstances, Hebrews chapter 8 is for you. The truths that we will be seeing in God's word are for you. So, I hope that you will fix your eyes with me as we go through God's word. The one word that I have on this screen is the word covenant, and I'm going to be using that word a whole lot today. So I think it's really important for us to to define that term and talk about what a covenant is, especially because we're going to be saying it again and again as we go through. So the first thing is, as I was thinking about the word covenant, which isn't really used that often in our day and age, 
the first thing that came to my mind was like a marriage ceremony. If anyone's been to a wedding, you may have heard the phrase, oh, this is like a sacred covenant, joining together two people, which is true, uh, partially true. And we also have the fact that covenants might be a partnership between two companies or two business partners may come into a covenant. But the Bible uses the word covenant and has a little bit deeper of a meaning than just that man-to-man. So let's look at a couple descriptions of what the word covenant is. First of all, we see that it is a joining of two. Two people coming together into a partnership, joining together And it actually, when they join together, it changes their relationship. They're actually now, once you come into covenant, once two people come into covenant, they're identified by each other. When my wife and I got married, she's now my wife. I am now her husband. We're now identified uh, together. We also see that covenants involve promises. Every single covenant that was made in Scripture has a promise attached to it. This is really important. We get to see some of those promises of the new covenant a little bit later on. We also see the fact that covenants involve families and bloodlines. Once a covenant was made, it would last generation after generation. It wouldn't just end once that person died. It would continue on and last for generations. We also see that covenants were always spiritually charged. There was always a calling in of God to be witness to the covenant being made, that man-to-man making a covenant together, they're calling on God to be a witness to that. And we also know that covenants were not to be broken. They were not easily broken. And so much so that often when covenants were made in the Old Testament, an animal would be sacrificed, representing what would happen, that death would happen if this covenant were to be broken. These are really important things for us to be thinking about. The other thing is, we see that covenants were not only between man and man, like uh, two people joined together, but covenants were also from God to man. And this is important because the entire Bible, the entire framework of the Bible, is surrounded by the words covenant. And we see covenant, and I have a list of some of these covenants on the screen for you to see. The the first covenant begins in the very first chapters of Genesis. God comes to Adam after the fall in the garden and says, I will make a covenant with you. I will send someone. One of your line will defeat death, conquer over death. That was a promise given to Adam. We also see a promise being given to Noah after the flood and and the earth was made new. God makes a promise to Noah and says, I will never wipe humanity off the face of the earth again. That promise was given to Noah. We see a promise given to Abraham. God comes and selects one man out of a group of people and says, I am choosing you. I make a covenant with you. You will be my people and your lineage will be a great nation and those will be my special selected people. We also see that a covenant was given to Moses The law, the promises of the law, the blessings that would come from the law were given to Moses if the people would follow the law. The law also allowed the people to be separate from the different nations that surrounded them, making them different. And we also see promises given to David. God made a covenant with David and said, on your line, there will always be a king. A king king will come from your line who will rule forever, foretelling of Christ ruling forever from his line. And then Christ. 
the promise of salvation that comes through Christ, through grace, by faith alone, to all who would believe. We see this new covenant, and this is the covenant that we're going to be able to look at today in Hebrews chapter 8. Michael Horton, who's a Christian theologian, makes this really great quote. Let me read it for you. It says, Christ's death inaugurates a new covenant as a royal grant, that is, a last will and testament that dispenses an inheritance based on his perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience rather than our own. And we're going to see that this is super important because all the old covenants, man had to do something, but this new covenant is based on his, on Christ's perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. And with the context and us understanding our context and also us understanding our terms and our words. Now we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, either a physical Bible or an app on your phone, I'd invite you to turn there. I will have the majority of my uh, text also on the screen if you want to watch there, but it's really important for us to be looking and seeing God's word. So with that said, let's move into movement number one, which is the covenant is ministered by a superior high priest. Take a look at what it says. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. You'll see that the author starts with a summary statement. Now the point in what we're saying is this. That is a summary statement of everything he has talked about so far in the book of Hebrews in the first seven chapters. He sums this up to say, we have this high priest. It's a fact. We have him. He's made the argument starting in chapter 4 through chapter 6 and chapter 7 we have this great high priest. And when he says such high priest, that phrase is referring to the statements he's made about this high priest in chapter 7, that Christ is holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's immortal. This is the high priest that we have. We also see that this high priest has the moral adequacy, that he is morally perfect, not needing to sacrifice for himself before sacrificing for the people. Hebrews 7 says this, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did it once for all when he offered himself up. He is morally perfect. He's also able to relate to our weaknesses and our temptations. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is our great high priest because just like the high priests of old, he's able to understand the, the challenges and struggles that we go through, and he can bring those before God. He is our adequate high priest. The second word that we have highlighted here is the word seated. And this is really important for us to see. And I'm going to have an image on the screen I want you to take a look at. Take a look at this image. This is a, a picture of the tabernacle, then to the temple later, but the tabernacle that was given to Moses to be set up. I know the image might be a little bit small, but in this image there are tables for, uh, for slaughtering, there's altars, there's place to be for purification to happen, but in this entire tabernacle, there's no place for the priests to sit. For in fact, the priest's work was never done. There was always more sacrifices to offer. There was always more purification to be done. There was always more blood to be spilt to cover the sins of themselves and also of the, the, the people. This is really important because the author is saying he's seated, our high priest is seated, which means... 
His work is done. His atoning work for us has been completed. It is finished. That atoning work has been done. He no longer needs to offer sacrifices. He did it on the cross. The next phrase that we see in these verses is the fact that he is seated at the right hand of majesty. This is specifically referring back to Hebrews chapter 1 that talks about after Christ completed the work of purification, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, again, is our high priest. He's also our king. And the word majesty there is important to see because the word majesty means God himself. Jesus Christ is seated. He's enthroned as a king next to God himself. He is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come, in Ephesians 1 says. Or say it this way, God has taken Christ, and therefore God has, has highly exalted him, and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is next to God. He is in the very holy of holies. As a high priest and king, he's, he is with God. The next phrase I want to see in these verses is that phrase in verse 2 that says he's a minister in uh, the holy place. This is a really important phrase for us to see because not only is Christ reigning and seated in heaven, but he is continuing to mediate and advocate for us. His atoning work is done. His atoning work had been completed on the cross, but Christ is not simply in heaven, seated on his throne, idle. He's not just sitting there doing nothing. He's doing something for us. He is advocating for us. He's mediating for his people. And this is a huge encouragement for us because what this means is that Christ is, has an active and ongoing work for you and for me. When we pray to him and when we, when we lift our prayers, he's hearing those prayers and he's mediating those to the Father. Or think about it this way. In the book of Luke, right before Simon Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus says these words to him. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus praying for Simon not to have his faith fail is the same now with Christ in heaven. As a superior high priest, when we offer our prayers to God, he's taking those prayers and he's mediating for us to, to the Father. We have this mighty king on this holy throne, this holy high priest, but what these verses are saying for us and the reason why this is important for us to hear is that he cares for you, and he cares for me. He hears the things that we have to say, whether it's spoken or unspoken, he hears those prayers, and he's bringing them to the Father. He's praying for us, and we should be encouraged because of that truth. As we go to our second movement, our new covenant is ministered in a better place. Now look at that phrase, 
better place. And remember the context that we're in. We're, we're talking, this letter is written to a group of, of Jewish believers who are, they know where the temple is. If they've been to Jerusalem, they would have seen this huge temple. And I'm sure they must be asking the question, what do you mean a better place? What can be better than the temple that Herod has created? Here's an image of it. This giant structure with all the different aspects that were given by God. What can be better than this? And also, how do we know that Jesus is ministering in a sanctuary? How can we know that that's true? We can't see him. We've never seen Jesus. How do we know that this is happening? And this is why I love the Bible, because there are arguments being made here in Scripture. Not only is it just a group of truths, but there are, there's a development of an argument and answers to these questions that the author knows are being asked. So there's three different answers given to this question. Well, what, how do we know Jesus is ministering in the sanctuary? There's a logical answer, a genealogical answer, and a typological answer. So let's look at those as we go verse by verse. So let's take a look at verse 3, where he lays out our logical argument. It says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. The logical argument that this author is making is the fact that we already know that Jesus is a high priest. That fact has been proven in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. So if Jesus is a high priest, then he has to have somewhere to worship. He has to have somewhere to mediate for us. He has to have a specific place. He has to have a sanctuary. High priests couldn't just go and serve anywhere. They had to do it in a specific place. Hebrews 5 says, For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men and in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus has to have a sanctuary. The logical answer is he's a high priest. He has to have a sanctuary. The other thing I want you to see with this group of verses is that wording, to offer. The author uses the word to offer, and the Greek tense means to offer once for all. Jesus isn't in heaven right now in this sanctuary offering sacrifices that were laid out in the Old Testament. His atoning work is done. That sacrifice has been given once and for all already. So that's answer number one. Jesus is, has a sanctuary because he's a high priest. Let's look at the genealogical answer that the author gives. Verse four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The author points out that we know, and the Mosaic law lays out that not anyone can be a priest. If I feel like being a priest, I can be a priest. No, if, I, if I'm going to be a priest in the Old Testament, I have to be in the line of Levi. Only the Levitical line of priests could be priests. And you know, and I know, Jesus didn't come from the line of Levi. He was from Judah. He was from the line of David, which means he would have no right to serve as a priest if he were here on earth. So if he can't be a priest here on earth, we know he has to be somewhere else. And actually in Psalm chapter 110, David points out the fact that Jesus is going to be like Melchizedek. He's going to be like this priestly king serving in this better place. So the genealogical answer is Jesus is serving somewhere else. He's serving in a heavenly sanctuary. Our final answer to the question, well, why do we know that Jesus is ministering in a better place comes from verse 5. Take a look. 
They served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. All right, as we look at this typological answer, it's really important to see that the author is saying the, the, the tabernacle and then to the temple that's here on earth are supposed to be a small-scale replica of what is in heaven, as a copy of what's in heaven. And everything that was laid out, the Israelites would see these things and say, everything that God has said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do to follow these covenant stipulations. To think about the tabernacle and now the temple, Herod's temple, being just a copy and a shadow would have been a revolutionary thing to these believers. And when I look at the words shadow and copy, the first thing that comes to mind is this image. Anyone a fan of Greek philosophy? Anybody? Yeah, me neither. There's a couple of you, but not I'm me neither. The reason this comes to my mind is that when I was going to Moody, a part of my coursework was I had to take a class on intro to philosophy. I never studied philosophy. I wasn't a big fan of philosophy, but I had to take this class. There was a couple problems with this class. Not only was it tough stuff, but it also it was on a Monday night at 7 o'clock. It was a three-hour class. I, I struggled. I struggled. It might explain why I got a C in the class. But anyway, um, all I remember, the things that really stuck in my mind about this class is my professor, Dr. O'Neill, would begin almost every single class when he was talking about this. And this image is the image of Plato's cave. And I'll explain what's going on in just a minute. But he would begin almost every class by diagramming out Plato's cave. And he would draw it with chalk on a chalkboard. So really detailed, but Plato's cave, and the, the argument that Plato's giving is that we, men's knowledge, are like the men on this side of the screen who are chained up in the cave. All they can see is what's on the wall in front of them. That's their only knowledge of what's happening in the entire world, is what they can see. And you can see that what they're seeing, they see a shadow. Oh, that's a horse. It has to be a horse because we can see it, but really it's just a shadow. Plato's making the argument that we only have knowledge of what we can see here, and it isn't until we get outside the cave, like the two men seeing the sunshine, the trees, and the water, that we get the reality of what life is really about. And the reason I bring this story up is the fact that what we see here, the author is saying to these group of believers who would be well aware of this Greek kind of thinking, these Greek philosophies, is the fact that we, like man in this cave, we are only aware of what we see in front of us, whereas the tabernacle and the temple are really just a shadow. They're just a copy of what is actually real, like the men seeing the sunshine in the tree. And I love how verse 5 says that Moses has to see the image that is in heaven and then make a copy of that here on earth which means that Jesus is serving in the original sanctuary. The original sanctuary is where Christ is. And I think it's important for us to pause here for just a minute to say, well, why is this important to these believers? Why is it important for Christ to be serving in this better sanctuary? 
And there's a couple reasons why Christ serving in a better sanctuary is important for you and I to understand today. The first thing is, because Christ is serving in a better sanctuary, it means that you and I can worship God anywhere we are. We no longer have to take a pilgrimage to the temple to meet with a high priest to offer our, our sacrifices or, or to, to look to mediate to God. We can meet God anywhere. We no longer have to meet at a geocentric location. It also means that no longer is Christianity about, oh, come see our temple. Come see how great our God is. Christianity now is go tell. We have this truth. We know that Christ is in heaven ministering for us, and we can now go tell the world. And this has a great impact on how we worship and also how we, how we talk about missions and how we interact with others. We can worship God wherever we are, either in a great cathedral here at Millington or under a tree in Africa. It doesn't matter where we are. The other thing that is really important is that any tribe and nation and language can worship God. It's not this set, concise, constricted thing that the law would have laid out. The other thing we can worship in just our daily lives, in the normal things that we do day in, day out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We have this ability to worship God in whatever our context is, and we also have the ability then to use that truth and share this truth to the people that we come in contact with as well. All right, our third movement. The covenant, our new covenant, is founded on better promises. We've already talked about the fact that all covenants had promises. We have better promises here in the new covenant. So let's look at some of those. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he fall, finds fault with them when he says, well, let's pause there. The first thing I want us to see before we start looking at these promises is, is the author saying here that the old covenant or the law itself was flawed? That there was a problem with this old covenant, so now we need a new one? Well, yes and no. Remember, both of these covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Law and the Old Covenant, were both given by God. Both were given for his people's good, and both had blessings attached to them. Even though the New Covenant that we have now means that we're not restricted by the law, it doesn't mean we have the right to just go sin and disobey God. The issue was not with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant in and of itself was perfect. The issue was with the people. And I've highlighted that word them there. It doesn't say he finds fault with it, the old covenant. It says he finds fault with them, which means the problem is our heart problem. We as people like to go our own way. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to do things our own way. And for any parents in the room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have a two-year-old daughter, and she's super cute, and I love her so much, but I know when I tell her, hey, you need to do this, she's going to be like, no, you know? And no one had to teach her that. Like, no one had to teach her to say no. No one had to teach her to get upset and mad when she want, someone's asking her to do something she doesn't want to do. That's our human nature. That's how we are applied. And the old covenant couldn't fix that problem. It couldn't fix that issue, which means we need a new covenant. And the new covenant 
is given to those who believe in him. So let's look at those four distinct promises that come from the new covenant. We have the promise of God's grace, promise of the internal change, the promise of forgiveness, and the promise of eternal blessings. Let's look at the first promise, the promise of God's grace. Verse 7 through 9 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now I've highlighted a couple things on the screen that I want you to see. First of all, in the Mosaic covenant, and when the covenant was given by Moses to the people, they responded, once the covenant had been read to them, they said, in all these things, we will do this. And they failed. They fell short. They couldn't do everything that the law commanded. They fell short of it. So we see a change here for the new covenant from we will, we have to do this, to I will. And I've highlighted that for you. We're going to see that phrase, I will, repeated six times in the next several verses. This is a covenant made by God, and God is swearing to himself that this covenant will happen. Because God's swearing to himself because there's nothing higher than God himself. The other thing that we see about this new covenant is God giving his grace and giving his care. Just like a loving father, we see that loving father phrase here, his tender care leading them out of Egypt. His loving care for us, even though he knows that the people he was leading out were going to rebel again and again. The old covenant under the law made nothing perfect because it could not change any human heart. Only God's grace can do that. This new covenant, this promise is the promise that we have is under God's grace. God's grace and faith go together just like the law and the works went together for the old covenant. God's grace gives us the ability to have change. And let's take a look at what that change is. The second group of uh, promises we see is in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We see that phrase, I will, repeated here six times. God's saying, I'm going to bring about this change. And remember, the change that he's talking about here is internal. The old covenant and law could only bring about external change. We only could have our sin covered, not removed. That's a huge issue. But with the new covenant and the bringing of the new covenant, we as sinners, once we believe in Christ, we receive his divine nature inside us, 2 Peter chapter 1 says. So under the new covenant now, we have the ability to have internal change. We have the ability to follow God's law, not based on our own work, but by yielding to the Holy Spirit that we have the victory over sin. This is the promise of eternal change that comes through the new covenant and is good news for us as we go through our lives, hour by hour, day by day, the grace of God is there for us, for us to rely on for him to bring change. All right, let's go to the third promise, the promise of forgiveness, verses 11 and 12. And they shall not teach each other, each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. These verses are talking about a time when everyone will know God. Some of this is future, but what we can see here is that we have, and under the new covenant, we have the ability to be forgiven, to have our sins removed. Take a look at the phrase, remember their sins no more. This phrase, it means that our sins, once we are under the new covenant by grace, we no longer have our sins held against us. God being God cannot forget your sins, but when he looks at you and when he looks at me, he does not see your sin. He sees his son's death on the cross and his blood covering us, making us perfect in the sight of God. And because we have been forgiven for our sins, this also means that we now have the ability to forgive others. We now have the ability to extend God's grace and mercy and forgiveness to the people that surround us because of Christ's work. The last promise that we see in these groups of verses is the promise of eternal blessing. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new covenant will never age or disappear. The new covenant is here to stay. This is the lasting work that Christ has made, and this will continue. And this is good news to us because we, under the new covenant, are now partakers in a new nature. We are new. We are changed because of this new covenant. It also means that for the rest of our lives here on earth, we can live differently because of the new covenant. And we also have the hope of eternal salvation through Christ in this covenant. We are saved because of his, his work on the cross. So as we close, as I invite the, uh, the worship team to come back, I want us to just review the things that we've covered, that the new covenant, we see that because we have this superior high priest, we have a mediator, someone who's going before the Father and interceding for us. So when we pray and when we offer our prayers to God, God hears those things, and, our, and Jesus is on our side mediating for us. We also know that because we, Christ is in the sanctuary and ministering in the sanctuary, you and I can worship here and now in this building and anywhere we go. This is good news for us. And finally, we know that because the new covenant is based on new promises and better promises, that we are able to live our lives by grace through faith. Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the lasting impact and change that your word makes. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we hear these things, that change would come, that as if we need hope, if we need encouragement, that you would give those things to us. And we thank you for your son's life and death on the cross and that he is raised and is reigning in heaven for us. We give you all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.